This is the Marketing Podcast Network. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Robbie Samuels hosts the On the Schmooze podcast. Robbie, tell listeners what to expect from the show. Since 2015, I've interviewed entrepreneurs who overcame challenges to achieve success in their field or industry. Tune in to On the Schmooze to listen as I ask deep questions to elicit untold stories about leadership and networking. And where can people subscribe? Find the show at ontheschmooze.com or on marketingpodcast.net or just search for it wherever you get your podcasts. You heard them. Go subscribe. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy. Tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Uh, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin. Today, I'm excited to introduce you to Tim Murphy. Tim is the author of Correspondence and Christadora, which was long listed for the 2017 Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence in Fiction and named a best book of the year by The Guardian. He has also been a journalist for the past 25 years and joins me today on Uncorking a Story to talk about his career and latest novel, Speech Team. Welcome to Uncorking Story, Tim. Hi, thank you for having me, Mike. <laughs> Happy to have you, Tim. I'm curious, where does your story as an author begin? You mean my personal story? Your like, personal story as an author, yeah. Like how what how I first became an author? Yeah, like how, how you got into writing, when you when you started to get interested in, in writing, when you knew you wanted to be a writer for a living? Uh, okay, sure. Well, it goes back a, a very long way. I mean, I mean, I think I've wanted to be a writer since, well, and started being one when I, I mean, I don't know, eight or nine. I remember that I wrote this little poem called Nightfall. This was maybe in like fourth grade. And, and somehow it ran in like the town paper and like seeing it in print with my name under it just like made my head explode. And I always say, I guess that's when I got bitten by the bug. You know, I just wanted to write and publish. And um, I I did, you know, I mean, the flip side is that I was just like a voracious reader, you know, and started reading like, quote, adult novels, not like triple X, though I did sneak peeks at my mother's like <laughs> Judith Krantz, like scruples, has some really great, really spicy scenes in it. But I mean, you know, not children's novels or YA novels. Um, I started reading them young, like, I don't know, like 11, 12, 13. And um, I don't know. I just, you know, like I, any chance I could get, I wrote 
stories. I wrote fiction. I had a wonderful teacher in high school who he took me and another student to uh, this special weekend at Middlebury College that was related to Bread Loaf, which is like their writing program they've had there for a really long time. And it was so intoxicating. I mean, it was just a weekend of writers and poets and workshops. And I wrote this, you know, long short story that I brought up to be workshopped and like, it was the first time I ever sat in a workshop and I was like 16, 15 or 16, you know, and there were readings and I was just so enchanted by the whole thing. I mean, it's really other than a journalist, which is something I also really love from a young age and which I also am like it's a, a novelist is the only thing I've ever wanted to be ever, ever, ever. Um, and I think I learned a long time ago that um, I will keep writing them regardless of whether they're bought or they do well, <laughs> because I'm just unhappy when I'm not, you know, I'm happier when I'm writing a novel and less so when I'm not. So I've realized that I kind of compare it to someone that de that needs to constantly knit a new quilt or quilt, make a new quilt or something, you know, as soon as they're done knitting a sweater, they have to like start another because it's like, it's all they know how to do. <laughs> Do you still have a copy of that that first thing you published in the paper that that got you bit by the bug? I think my mother might have it in some <laughs> box somewhere. Yeah, that's uh, that's an important thing. You gotta you gotta you gotta bust that out and frame it or something. Mm. How about that uh, that teacher? How important was it for you in high school to have somebody believe in you and encourage you to do that? You know, bread loaf program at Middlebury College. It was an, it was extraordinary. I mean, he was, you know, for one thing, he was gay and he was not out, you know, at least he was not out to the students. Um, even though I think we all kind of understood on some level that he was. Um, and I think when he did come out after I graduated, it was got a bit ugly actually, but I don't want to say that definitively cause I wasn't there and I only heard that firsthand, but he was just such a lovely man. His name was Leonard DeSimone. And he was just so lovely. And I remember that weekend. And I remember he said to me, I said something like, I don't want to write. I would never just write for myself. And he said, that's because you write for an audience. And, you know, that has stayed with me all these years. You know, I don't know why. It was just a very offhand thing that he said. And it's sort of kind of obvious in a way. But that was remarkable. And there were other there were other teachers too, you know, like we used to get, um, you know, the Atlantic magazine. We, sure. we, we, I had this class, this English class where we got it and we had to, we, we, we had to get the magazine or maybe the, maybe the school paid for the subscription. I don't know, whatever, but we got it every month. And there was this illustrator named, and I don't, maybe he's still, I don't even know if he's still alive or if he's still working, but there was this illustrator named Guy B.U., like this French name and, and every issue he'd have like an illustration that was very weird, very abstract or odd, you know, like what's wrong with this picture kind of thing. And we would have to write like a creative response to it. And everybody else would like write a haiku, like five minutes before class, I would write these like 20 page short stories, you know, based on the picture 
um, because I had started my, I, my, I think my mother had started buying me like best American short stories. You know, they come it comes out every year. And so this was the mid eighties, you know, so this was the, really the golden age of like Mona Simpson and like Ethan Kanan and, and Beatty and, you know, the very, the Raymond Carver school of a certain kind of like a very, um, everything is kind of middle-class and like dull on the surface or, you know, understated and like all the themes are kind of subtextual or so. And I was just so enamored of like, that was when I started reading like contemporary fiction, you know, and I just wanted to be one of these, you know, this is the era of like Tama Janowitz and like Brett Ellis and Jay McInerney and Mona Simpson. And, you know, they were all kind of like a brat pack of writers in New York. And I just wanted to be part of them so badly, you know, so how much time sort of uh, elapsed between, you know, starting your first novel and getting it published? What What's the backstory there? Well, the first one I wrote and published in my 20s, it was called Getting Off Clean. And it was kind of like a gay coming of age, you know, very like set, very set in the town where I grew up in Massachusetts, but not. A, you know, a lot of invented stuff happens in it. Um, I think I started it when I was like 24 or 25. And, you know, I worked in book publishing right out of college. So I had some understanding of how it all worked, you know. So I think that maybe hastened it a little bit because, like, I sort of, you know, knew how to get an agent. And, but, you know, and then I published an, another novel a few years later that no one in the U.S. bought. It was published in the U.K. In, by Little Brown U.K. It went nowhere, nowhere. I mean, the editor who loved it and bought it left before it even came out. So they did the bare minimum. They published it, and that was it. And then I didn't, I didn't write fiction again. Well, no, that's not true. I wrote another novel that after that that barely saw the light of day. But then I really became. Um, well, I had a lot of personal issues too at that time, a lot of dealing with, you know, depression and addiction and for a few years. And then when I came out of that, I really kind of got a break as a journalist and that's really all I did for a decade. And I had a weird aversion to every once in a while I would try to write fiction and it, I just, it, I just felt so frustrated I don't quite know what happened. I went through this long period where I was like, oh, what's the point? There's too many books in the world anyway. You know, I remember somewhere around this time I went into the Strand, you know, the giant bookstore in downtown Manhattan. And I just had this moment of like, what is the point? You know, like all these books and like hardly any of them are going to make a dent, you know, like why does anyone even bother? I was in a really down but, you know, but then what happened as the years passed and as I came up on 40, um, I really started feeling like if you don't try this again, you're really going to regret it. You know, like you're just going to get more and more kind of bitter about it and you should just try again, you know. And so I didn't have an idea for like a whole novel. So I wrote this. I wrote like a novella, you know. And it it became basically the first chapter of Christodora, and that was the first thing I published in like almost twenty years. 
And that kind of started phase two, I guess, of my novel writing life, because that was, I started writing that in 2009. It was published in 2016. And since 2016, this new novel, Speech Team, is my third novel since then. So... Do you think you needed that that 20 year gap in order, you know, in order to write something, you know, of the acclaim of Christadora or, you know, of course, we'll, we'll talk about speech team in a moment. But did you I mean, did you need that 20 years? And like, what did you learn about yourself over those 20 years that that helped get you in the position to write, you know, stuff this good? Well, thank you, first of all. <laughs> um, yeah, I do. I mean, I don't think maybe I knew that then. And I do think so in retrospect. Christodora, I think, you know, I'll be honest. I think it's the best thing I've written and the deepest. And I think it's because I was sitting on like 10 years of feelings and experiences and it all went into the book, you know? I mean, a lot of the book too is about like the AIDS epidemic in New York City in the 80s and the 90s and how it kind of faded away. But, you know, for many people, it left a mark you know, it had repercussions that, you know, lasted well beyond like the worst years. Um, you know, I've been like in HIV AIDS, I've mostly, that's mostly what I've written about since like the early nineties or since the mid nineties. So a lot of my knowledge around that went into that novel as well, but a lot of personal feelings went into it as well, you know? So I guess it was unknown to me unbeknownst to me, I guess it was percolating maybe all those years, you know? And I remember thinking, um, well, I will just put this book out in the world one way or another, you know, even if I have to self-publish, even if it's like a tiny queer press, or if I have to self-publish, I'll get it out there somehow. Um, and that's how that, you know, that's how that happened. And yeah. And so this book, and it's funny because I've actually like, I mean, I feel like I'm amassing a, a parallel pile of novels that may never see the light of day. Like I've written one, two, I think two and a half that have never been published. And, you know, the one I just finished, who knows, that may never be published, you know, I mean... So it's funny. It's like I've written almost twice as much as I've published. <laughs> I have these manuscripts <laughs> like in boxes. Yeah, I've I've heard that's not that based on the people I talk to anyway. It's not all that uncommon to have a few. I mean, a, a few like done and remaining unsold before you know you you start to take off a little bit. But um, what can you what can you tell us about Speech Team? Well, Speech Team is about um it's about four friends from high school it's very autobiographical i mean not everything that happens in it but i would say like the past part of the book is autobiographical it's four friends who were in high school together in a public high school in massachusetts in the 80s and they were all on speech team um and 25 years later they find out that a fifth member of the team and they've they've all more more or less they've all drifted you know, they haven't stayed in touch over 25 years, but they were very close at the time because they were like the weirdo, you know, the brainy misfit kids or the proto-gay kids, you know. Um, and they uh, they slowly reunite. This fifth member of the team kills himself and he leaves a note where he says something about 
something that was said to him by the speech, by the teacher who was the speech coach that he never forgot. And so the four of them, they slowly reunite and they start sharing notes and they realize that this particular teacher said something problematic to all of them, you know, about different aspects of their identities basically. And they decide to like, kind of for fun slash what, what might happen to go find, they find out that he's in retirement in Florida. So they decide to go take this trip to Florida together and to find him and to confront him and, and not to like, you know, people have been like, Ooh, just, you know, people have said to me like, Oh, just, did they kill him or do they kidnap him or do they torture him? <laughs> I'm like, no, it's not really that kind of an over the top book. They want to ask him, they just want to say like, do you remember what you said? And do you know that none of us have ever forgotten it? You know, it stayed with us our whole lives. And do, and why did you say it? You know, if you do, you know, why did you say it? So that's the premise of the book, but it's yeah. also sort of about the four of them and how they've changed, you know, how they've done better than they thought they would or worse. And it's, you know, it's a reunion. It's it's like a high school reunion story. Yeah, of like of the misfits, and I'd be curious to know, like, like you know, I, I love the premise of it. It screams to me of like, hey, if we met, you know, the five kids who were in the Breakfast Club, I think there were five. You know, what what are they doing now? How do their lives change? You know, would they still, you know, I guess coalesce the way they did, you know, in in the movie. Um, did you have fun with that, that, you know, kind of bringing these, you know, people back together after such a long time? Yeah, it's really fun to imagine scenarios and conversations where people who haven't been in touch for years are in touch again. And it's a bit awkward, you know, I mean, for one thing, I think they're all aware, you know, of the four of them, only two have like stayed, you know, were absolute besties and have on and off have stayed close over the years. So, you know, when they do re when the four of them do reunite, there's a bit, there's a bit of this awkwardness of like, why are we back together? You know? Um, so the awkwardness of, uh, how would it play out? Like I'm a very, very kind of naturalistic writer in a way, you know, like I don't really do much in the realm of fantasy or science fiction, stuff like that. It was really about, well, how would this play out, you know, in a way that is where they out, they do go on the trip, which is stretching plausibility a little bit, but you kind of want everything leading up to that to be plausible, you know, so there's a real fits and starts kind of quality to it. In, uh, also the fact that, um, you know, the retired teachers in Florida, because there's just so much fun you can have writing about Florida. Uh, and I'm speaking about that as somebody who was born and raised partly in Florida. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> it is, it can be a fun setting. Just, uh, well, they you know. go to, um, the teacher lives in Sarasota and they stay on the long boat key. I think it's a very posh Island off of Sarasota. So describing this kind of posh, but also kind of bland, you know, atmosphere was fun, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I've always wanted to write something that took place in the villages. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with that big retirement oh, yeah, community down I, there, but I think that could certainly be fun. I would just love to go there. 
<laughs> just people watching the film. Where, where is it in Florida? I think it's somewhere like dead in the center of the state. And it's, you know, it's, it's, I think it's got like 56 golf courses and just, you know, it's, it's probably like bigger than the population of the villages could be bigger than like the state of Rhode Island for all I know, certainly Montana. Right. Right. <laughs> it's fascinating. But I love, I love also the dynamics of bringing this, you know, group of people back together reminds me of like, the dynamics that might reemerge when 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 a family who hasn't seen each other for a while get together and how old dynamics kind of come into play um at least that's what happens in, in when my family of origin gets together it's uh it's always interesting yeah i mean i think there's a lot of kind of like self-reflection going i mean they've all done i would say they're they're at four different levels of like success in life you know I mean, one of them is sort of like dazzlingly successful. One is like comfortably successful. One is fine, but not very happy. And and another one is like really struggling just to make ends meet. So there's tension and like dynamics over that, you know? And um, I mean, I don't want to say what happens, you know? Yeah, but, I don't want to give anything away. No spoilers here. Yeah, I mean, all I would say is that um it's like in well what's the point of saying anything yeah i won't <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure it's a it's a great summer read that's for sure well i hope <laughs> <laughs> well one of the ways i like to also get to know my guests a little bit is by asking some questions around pop culture and i know you were a big reader as a child but i'm curious tim when you were growing up was there anything you like to watch on tv any tv shows that you were interested in as a kid Oh my God. Yeah. Well, I mean, I was, I was like, you know, a gay teen in the eighties. So I was obsessed with dynasty, of course. <laughs> Linda, Linda Evans. No, Joan Collins. Oh, Joan Collins. Okay. And, there um, you go. and, um, oh my God, I can't believe Diane Carroll. I mean, that's who I watched it for. Like they're, you know, all the diva shade between the two of them. I mean, that was, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and who else? I mean, seriously, that was my, that was my, um, there were, you know, this was a period where like in the eighties, like all the shows in the late afternoon and the early evening were like sixties and seventies, like repeats, like in syndication, you know? So, I mean, my brother and I joke that like, you know, we've seen every single episode of like the Brady Bunch and the Flintstones, like probably every single episode we've seen like 20 times yeah. because they would just show it they would show them all from the beginning of the series to the end and then they'd start again it was you know they just were just on a loop you know so yeah. um the flint i mean all my brother and i like all our jokes revolve around the flintstones like we have this whole massive vocabulary of like um and it's all like flintstones related i mean it just had a really you know en enormous impact on us <laughs> Do you remember the little green alien who would pop up from time to time on the phone? Yeah, his kazoo, right? Kazoo. Okay, so yeah. <laughs> I got into an argument with my wife, and because she does not remember kazoo, and she claims kazoo was on. If there was a kazoo, she claims he was on the Jetsons, and I do think there was a kazoo crossover between the two shows. But we were we were laughing because I was looking at my brother in law's big toe. Don't ask why. Um, and I'm like, his toe looks like kazoo. And she's like, who's kazoo? I'm like, kazoo, he's 
you know, he's the, the, the helmet, the green guy, you know, and the, she's like, anyway, but I'm glad you, somebody can validate my memory. That's quite an association with that, that's, <laughs> that you have looking at your brother-in-law's big toe. Well, he hasn't spoken to me in about a month and a half, so. Because you told uh, him his big toe looked like kazoo? I'm just joking. <laughs> I would be mortally offended as well. <laughs> well, you know, the, the gout doesn't help him either. Oh, my <laughs> God. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, I mean, the Flintstones was brilliant because it was so sad. It was really, it was such satire of, like, the 60s. Oh, yeah. You know? Like, they're satires of, like, youth culture and, you know, all these characters that were avatars for, like, real celebs at the time, like Anmar Grok and... I don't know. And we know all the songs, you know, because there were a lot of songs. There were a lot of episodes with songs in them. So. Oh, sure. I remember the anniversary episode. Oh, what happy was that? Happy anniversary. Song? Happy anniversary. Happy anniversary. It wasn't very, you know, creative. But it oh, was my God. I don't happy remember anniversary. that one. Oh, yeah. It's, it's uh, in there. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> it's in there. Uh, what about favorite movie as a kid? Well... Greece, probably. I mean, have you I, watched it recently? Yeah, in fact, I just was watching it, or at least parts of it. Um, it's such a beautifully choreographed movie. I mean, when I've watched it the past few times and whatever, like what I really noted was how it's just really beautifully choreographed. Like, there are just these wide shots where, like, everything is perfectly. I mean, that's kind of what I like appreciate it for now, you know, but it's also funny what an effect that, you know, like slutty Sandy at the end, like what an effect that had on, like, I had a friend who his parents said they felt like the undoing of their daughter was after she saw Greece and she wanted to be bad, like, <laughs> like sandy becomes at the end right and like it really really affected her like she wanted to be a bad girl like that you know <laughs> it's a leather jacket and cigarettes i'm trying yeah. to remember and what else. <laughs> yeah exactly and like that yeah that spandex like bodysuit she's wearing and um i'm trying to remember what else like what other films or you mean like as, as very young? Yeah, like when you no, were growing up, you. high school. I mean, come on. I'll tell come you, on. I remember when I was 10, you know, there was this movie, The Champ, with like, I think it's like John Voight and Ricky Schroeder and Faye Dunaway. And I think it's John Voight. I'll have to look. But anyway, he's sort of a washed up like fighter, like boxer. And, you know, he's very hard up. And Ricky Schroeder is his son. And his mother is Faye Dunaway, who's married this, like, really wealthy man. So there's kind of, like, this vying for, like, Ricky, you know? But, I mean, just for the point of the story, I will... It's a little bit almost like, you know, The Wrestler with Mickey Rourke? Sure. It's, it's sort of similar because the champ gets back into... I think it's John Voight. I'm going to actually look it up right now. Let me see. The champ. John... Yeah, it is John Voight. It was 1979. And so at the end, like, he makes a big comeback in the ring. And, of course, his son, little Ricky, is, like, rooting him on. But, like, he dies in the ring. And, like, little Ricky watches his dad die. And he's like, you can't die, Dad. You're the champ. You're the champ. And I would, like, sob. 
and I, I was addicted to it. Like it was on HBO. So it was on all the time or Cinemax or whatever. So it was on all the time. And it's like, I think I was just a, like a, just addicted to watching it and like crying. Like it was cathartic for me or something, you know, but so I must have been my brother like laughing at me because I would always cry at the end of the movie when he's like dying in the ring. <laughs> that must've been pre silver spoons, Ricky Schroeder. I think it was. Yeah. It was right before that high water moment for him. <laughs> That's right. That's right. What about music? What'd you like listening to when you were growing up? Well, like as a kid, like a young kid, I love Donnie and Marie. <laughs> But I mean, that was like really young, you know, when I yeah. was like six or seven or something like that. I mean, as a teenager, I really, music was everything to me. I mean, I played the piano, so I did like classical. I loved jazz and I loved like all the, st like Ella Fitzgerald and Sinatra. But I also really loved um, like, you know, indie, like, lots and lots like rem like early early rem when they were before they kind of became more accessible and the smiths and echo and the bunny men and the cure and i could go on but i mean i also the gay side of me the more like basic gay side of me also loved like madonna and janet jackson you know no sure sure i mean madonna was so big in the 80s and even in the 90s too um yeah, she had a great way of reinventing herself. I'm not so sure about her current look, um, but I know back in the day, she, she maintained her relevancy quite well. I mean, I don't even get me started. I could, like, <laughs> spout a dissertation on, you know, what she did to the culture in the 80s. I mean, yeah. I think it was, like, really, I think, around sexuality, around women's sexuality. It's certainly around gay visibility uh there's you know i'm sorry these girls today they don't you know they don't know they don't know the giant whose shoulders they're standing on <laughs> that's right that's right um what about reading do you have a favorite place where you like to read today yeah in bed i mean that's a pr pretty common I answer actually, i'm in bed right now i don't know if you can tell like i actually work and write and do everything in bed I just find it more comfortable than like sitting up in a chair. Sure. I, so I just sit all propped up in bed, like, you know, Barbara Cartland writing her romance. <laughs> okay. I'm, I'm really dating myself. Um, <laughs> you know, all propped up with my satin pillows and my little toy dog. And I hear the same man. Good. Yeah. No bed. I like, I mean, my favorite, my, one of my favorite things for the longest time, I, I mean, I don't do it like all the time anymore, but like for whatever reason, like staying up really late on like Friday night and like reading until like three or four in the morning is like one of my favorite things. You know, I don't do it a lot anymore, but like when I do, I just love that feeling of like, oh my God, this book is so good and I don't have to work or anything tomorrow. I don't have to go to bed. I can read. I can finish the book all, you know, I can stay up all night and finish the book if I want. What about writing? Would I hear the same answer? Do you write in bed as well? Or is there another place where you like yeah, to write? Yeah, I do. I do everything in bed. <laughs> I've written, I don't know, like four novels in bed. <laughs> there you go. 
Um, last step I have for you is uh, I call this the letter to me question. If you could, you know, write a letter to your younger self, uh, what would you tell that younger self, Tim? What, what kind of words of advice or encouragement would you give um, your younger self? Wow, I mean, that's so much of what Speech Team is about, actually. Um, uh, you know, I think I'd say um, you're going to have a lot of bad feelings. Um, and, um, they're not your fault, you know, like you're going to go through feelings that relate to, you know, how you were treated growing up. And I think if I had known that, like, you know, if I had made, if, if when I was in my twenties, if I really understood more that, you know, I mean, trauma, trauma, trauma is all anyone talks about now, but like it was poorly understood 30 years ago. And I don't really think it ever occurred to me how much like the abuse I suffered, like as a kid affected me later in life. And I would tell myself that, you know, I would say, I would say you're going to have, um, you're going to have a hard time and you're going to have bad feelings and you shouldn't feel like it's your fault. You know, like you should get help actually you should, you should excavate your past and, you know, talk about it. And I don't think I really made that connection until much later. Yeah. I love that notion of ex excavating your past. That's really powerful. Um, well, Tim, this has been a great conversation. If people want to connect with you, are you active on social media? Do you have a website people can, can look you up on? You know, I'm the worst. I don't have, I'm the only novelist in America that doesn't have like a dedicated website for themselves, but they can, you know, I'm on Instagram, like Tim Murphy, NYC writer. Uh, so they can like DM, they can find me there and DM me there. Yeah. All right. Very good. I'll be sure to put that Instagram handle in our show notes and assume that a speech team can be purchased wherever books are sold. Is that right? It's absolutely right. It's out sure. there. It's out there. So go buy it, people. Go buy Speech Team. And I'll put a link to uh, where you can buy it in the show notes as well. Tim, thank you for stopping by Uncorking a Story and letting me uncork yours. Sure. Thanks, Mike. I enjoyed it. Take care. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.